Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. When I think about healthy relationships out there, whether they're deeply intimate, like husband and wife or partners or spouses, or even with children, grandparents, whatever, immediate family, they're very much different than say communities where you don't really connect directly, but you are uh, both considered part of a community. This idea of empathy, compassion, and respect really thrive uh, in those kind of arenas and produce healthy relationships. But they're very, very deep subjects, and in some cases, the idea of compassion isn't even possible for some because it kind of requires this component called empathy. And then respect is always this sort of outlier that just hangs out there, and you know, it's, it's just so hard to really dig into relationships without these three being very aware or very much aware from the person's perspective and how they participate in community. Yeah, I think you're spot on and that, you know, these three sort of work as a system in that at the heart of being human, I have to have respect around other people because there's no other person that is identical to me. And so without understanding and sort of having an idea of, another that is separate from mine that might not look like me, think like me, or do like me, that that gets to be okay and actually is a really functional and adaptive thing. But then empathy is also embedded in that because it also means with that sense of respect, I can identify or maneuver myself to see things from another person's perspective and how, you know, an experience or an interaction might feel to them. Mm -hmm. And then I'm onboarding compassion alongside of that because compassion isn't just this sense of like sympathy, but rather some people would, would actually call it suffering with another. Right. And so not only do I sort of have an, a hold an awareness of another person's emotional experience, but an ability to come alongside them and be present with them in a way in which I would also experience some of that emotion that they too feel. Right, to, to play an active role in, uh, in maybe even alleviating their troubles. Yes. Right, because empathy is seeing their point of view and understanding from their point of view. Compassion is one step further, which is seeing that, feeling that, being there with them, but then also wanting to change that for them. And playing a role in that, kind of partnering with them even. 
Yeah, and I think that's the other piece of compassion is that it cues something in us to want to do something for that person to alleviate the suffering that they're encountering. In my world, I see this often in the experience of people grieving, Mm -hmm. right? Because grieving is an incredibly painful process. And so people will offer solutions or strategies or tell people what they should be doing when grief is an incredibly individualized gig. And part of that is because it's rooted in the relationship that someone has with another or be it a person or an animal or something that they really cared about. And so when we lose that, we have to make this maneuver of something tangible to an intangible place in our Mm -hmm. life. And that's a process. And so nobody else is going to have that same relationship with that other person. But people are very quick to offer input around what people, quote, should be doing. I love that. Should. You should be doing this. I can almost hear the contempt, which we'll probably talk about, in someone's (laughs) voice saying something like that to someone else. Because when you lack the empathy and compassion, I kind of can assume that contempt kind of comes in there instead. Yeah. Well, it presumes an awareness of another without that actual foundation. Mm. I might offer what if we practiced being more inquisitive of someone's experience as opposed to to leading my response with a statement over what they would have, could have, should have done. Right. How would that change an interaction? It's kind of like listen first, speak second. Well, it's interesting. I think it actually prompts the other person to be more reflective, right? Like the other if person, I, meaning the person who has the troubles and the person who's being contentful. Right. right. So if I, if you brought a problem to me and said, "Hey, you know, Marielle, I'm struggling with X, Y, or Z," and I was like, "Well, here's what you should do." Right. <laughs> you know that that may or may not be helpful. Whereas if I said, "Huh, like, what's that like? Tell me, like." To some degree, it's and, and I don't mean it in an in insulting or derogatory manner, but rather like, tell tell me what goes through your mind. Like, what are you thinking on, or when does that occur? Like, I I don't know right. your world, your experience. So I want to understand it because without that sense of understanding, I can't know. Yeah, it's it's sort of the backstory, the context, and without context, we often. Uh, don't make great decisions or can't give great advice because mm-hmm. we don't really understand what they've been through, why they've been through it, why they think they've been through it, how they've already tried to remedy it. And it also gives you somebody's frame of reference of how they have really taken this thing in their life, this trouble in their life, and how how it's become a, you know, a monster, a big monster, a small monster to them. And it almost describes how they feel about it. You know what I mean? Like it's... It's almost like the the building blocks of this problem and what they think it really is. And it could be rational or not. Right. But so think about how respect is really leading the charge, right? Because respect, if we're talking about it, you know, through that perspective that says this regard for the feelings, wishes, thoughts, rights, or traditions of another person, that, that that's sort of my step one of going, you're not me. And you don't have to be. And if I don't start there, then I'm really like already off kilter because guess what I'm using as a reference point? 
yourself. Uh. We tend to use what we know to make sense of what we don't know. So I'm going to use my own template. Which and makes then, sense. Right. I mean, imagine I'm just switching, you know, which way my lens is focused. So I put it back on me to try to understand you, which it may not fit you. Right. Well, here's what I would have done. Here, right. Here's how I would have thought about that. Or here's what I would have said. And then then for some reason, we're blabbermouths and we say that out loud. <laughs> and sometimes we don't even mean to, really, because it's just like a natural response to want to help someone. And the first thing you can think of is like, well, here's how I would have done it. Right. And the next thing you know, they're shamed. And then now they're not even open to tell you anymore. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in working with, with people over the years, I tend to tell them like, I, I don't know what you should do. Right. <laughs> but I want to walk with you to help you discover what you think would be best. And so if I sit here, like really it actually comes from a place of superiority, right? Right. To think like, I always say I might be the expert in some of this information or knowledge base, but who's the expert on you? Right. You are, of course. Yeah. Right. So I want to collaborate and work together so that we can help you be your best self and, and figure out what you're you're going to do in living your life. I always say my ultimate goal is to work myself out of a job that you would be able to do for you what I help you do Discover. for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I like about what you said there too is that uh, if that person felt alone, they now are not alone. Yeah. Even if you can't tell them what to do, they have someone else to bounce their crazy or perceived crazy <laughs> off of, you know? And I'm like yeah. that, like, babe, I tell my wife, am I crazy in this? Here's what I'm thinking. And she's like, <laughs> sometimes she's like, yeah, you're totally crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes she's like, no, not really. I understand where you're coming from with that. But have you considered this, this, or this? And she partners with me and walks with me through the, through the, through the concern or issue. Right. But see how then you've already stepped into that next thing, which looks like empathy. Mm. Does she say, well, well, you shouldn't feel that way? No, I can't recall her ever saying sometimes because she's a, a distinct helper and she mm -hmm. wants to solve my problems right away because she wants to remove my pain. It's not that mm -hmm. she wants to disrespect me and have lack of empathy. So sometimes, yes, but I wouldn't say very often. She often asks questions before she offers solutions. Right, because she's trying to make sense of and have a respect for the fact that you're not her. Right. And empathy looks like I want to understand further how you arrived in putting those things together because I wouldn't put those together. Right. But help me understand you. Right. And so it's interesting, like even with parenting and how we tend to do this a lot with kids, like thinking about kids who wake up in the middle of the night. Right. Well, like, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the dark. Well, well, what do you, you there's nothing to be afraid of. You shouldn't be afraid. Right. So you <laughs> Does, want to diminish their fear and, and almost make it not real. Well, and the crazy part is, ironically, is that you're telling them that their perception, their internal world isn't real. Yeah. And that's got to be, I mean, especially in a kid's place where they, they, they're still discovering and there's so much, they don't have experience like we do, the wisdom we do of, of many, many years or several decades. They're still, they're still learning about their environment and even themselves. And truly what, what is real and what's not real. There's a lot of fantasy in a child's mind that you know, kids believe in monsters and things like that. Well, there really are monsters. They're just not quite the same kind of monster as a kid makes in their mind. 
So it's still right. real, but not quite real. Right. And I mean, it's dark and shadows are real. Right. And our brains can assimilate light and dark into a pattern that looks like a monster. Yes. In what way don't we all have our own sort of shading that creates monsters? And so I might be apt to see a monster, ironically, in my world or, God forbid, in another person. Mm -hmm. Not because the other person is that, but because that's how their brain put together the information. Mm -hmm. Like when we talk about sort of healthy or unhealthy, adaptive or maladaptive things in relationship, this way of communicating is really significant because I, it happens in certain families where things are more covert. So I won't say like somebody, let's take, for example, you know, drinking behaviors and that there's a range of what is, you know, sort of social drinking versus non-functional or looks like abuse or dependence. But this way of communicating in that world is sort of a, a denial, minimizing of uh, the dynamics that are actually happening. And so I'm going to say, like, that's not a big deal. So whenever I actually disavow or don't give credence to another person's view, I am actually participating in that erosion of their internal world. Does that make sense? Yeah. They start to question themselves. They almost feel crazy or like, wow, so this is what I'm feeling isn't true. And so all these things I thought were true are not true you know, at least in that split moment, and they begin to think almost like they think them they're they're crazy, you know, or right, question is, their mindset even. Right, so it actually cultivates this undercurrent of distrust in themselves yeah, or wow. in yourself. And how terrible is it to not trust yourself? Right, I will actually use the terminology of when people talk about anxiety in self-doubt, that I can't, I, I feel like I live in a land of Swiss cheese where I don't know where or when the hole is going to come. I just know I'm going to fall. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, that's paralyzing, too, to to feel like, well, I always make the wrong choice. I can't trust my choices. And so you have somebody that uh, can't take a positive, trustworthy step forward in true life and potentially just their emotions and relationships because they're so paralyzed by this Swiss cheese effect, so to speak. When will I fall? Right. When you think about, you know, acquiring a skill, if I were to ask you, say, Adam, what skill do you think that you have practiced well, that you have a lot of confidence in, that it doesn't, like you can sort of go into that lane without any sort of effort or consideration. Anything come to mind? I think respect. I think I practice respect quite well. I, I, I like to consider where someone's at, understand, you know, what their concerns are. Um, and then that evolves into an empathetic position. So I think I try really hard to, to see that science. I'm not always good at it, but I definitely am trying to, res to, to practice it. Do you think that there were things throughout your life, be it relational experiences or events that happened wherein maybe you totally misstepped and you didn't get it right that helped you learn that? Or do you have any hypotheses as it relates to how you were able to cultivate respect? 
I think I haven't had a, a half hour to like mull on this and think about it, but I would say that like with anything for me or anyone else, I've learned through trial and error or by doing or by in many ways failing. So I'm sure I've failed many, many times in my life to respect someone else, which helped me understand how to respect someone else. Sure. But so relearning and going, I thought that this was okay, but maybe this doesn't work very well when I do it this way. And really that's what I want people to take away is that all of these things we talk about are skills that we can acquire over time and not everyone's in the same place. Uh, So often people want to correlate age with maturity or age with skill. (laughs) Yeah, that's not the truth. It's easy to assume that. Sure. It makes sense to assume it because you assume because someone's 30, they should be in a 30-year-old's mindset. However, their experiences in life, trauma, et cetera, you mentioned loss earlier. Geez. Right. Like, uh, you know, losing loved one or parents truly changes you in quite quite deep ways. And so someone who's 30 may not actually be in the 30-year-old mindset because they've had some significant troubles in their life. Right. I mean, in the same way, we can look at how kids grow as based on their environment. And so some kids, I mean, you can talk to 10 different parents about, you know, their expectations of their kids and what things they ought to be doing at that age. And some parents are perfectly settled about letting their kids do, you know, one activity or another that another parent would feel is atrocious. Like, oh, that's so far beyond my child's reach. So I'm not going to let them do that. And- The fundamental thing is we never, it doesn't matter who you are, none of us get better at anything that we don't practice. I like this idea that uh, for for those listening, thinking, wow, uh, I can actually change my position on empathy. I can get better at being empathetic. Mm -hmm. I like that because that gives me hope that people who who are, have, have difficulty with compassion, respect, or empathy, that they realize that it takes practice and that they can change. And it's not so much just force change. It it often requires some learning in, in that and some time in that and that it's okay. Most certainly, most certainly. And I do want to sort of input one little caveat because I don't want people to fall on the other far end of the spectrum and then go, oh, I only need to be considerate of others and not myself oh because that can that can happen too. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely people who um, who forget about themselves. Basically, self care. You know, all the necessary things to live healthily, or uh, you know, have a, a healthy brain perspective. Which is why I love doing the show with you because you know I, I realized that so that our brain is the most important organ. Without it, we wouldn't be human because right. we, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have motor skills or all the things that our brain does. But but realizing there are so many things about the brain that explain how we are and who we are and how mm-hmm. we can work well with one another. That's what I love so much about this show and that idea that people can change and the brain plays such a key role in that. Well, and it's interesting because we might actually have a certain level of awareness or skill and then something else will happen and then we go, oh, man, shoot, I thought I was a lot farther along or far more equipped. And I'm than, not. <laughs> right? And so, you know, it's like I can know how valuable sleep is, that if I want to do better with myself and with others, 
that probably sleep should be in my like top three. But I'm like, no, I can just, I mean, I don't know, you know, if it's just my individual thing, being a mom, being, you know, in the field I'm in or what, but I'm always apt to be like, oh, I'll, I'll just keep pushing. Maybe it's a little type A in there, but <laughs> I will push harder and longer to get whatever needs to be done done without regard for like the implications on myself. So right. it's interesting. We want to sort of put, you know, respect, empathy, and compassion all in the lane of others. But let's flip it for a second and apply it to ourselves. Yeah. I think about it in terms of like our limits and that we want to infer that because I've done something at one point in time, I should be able to do that. Take, for example, staying up late, pulling all-nighters when you're in college or grad school or doing whatever project, startup, et cetera, right? I mean, it's like you can go full tilt and it's like, dude, I got coffee. We can just keep going. Right. There are times when at least – so this is my rationale with it. I've done this a couple times, meaning I've pushed the boundary and lacked the uh, empathy and compassion for myself to do better self-care in seasons. And so I say to someone in that kind of moment, if you're encountering this notion of pushing yourself beyond your limits, understand kind of that you're building some sort of debt. Yeah. In software, they call it tech debt. I don't know what you would call it in personal scenarios like this, but maybe it's just emotional debt or just fatigue or whatever. But basically allow yourself to do something like that to push yourself beyond a limit. But understand mm-hmm. that you do have a limit and only do it for a season. So pick a time frame, uh, a month, six months. Give yourself a time frame where it's okay and you understand what you're doing. But then you've got a certain limit to say, okay, now I've got to stop doing this. Right. No, that's spot on. I mean, I can um, think back like when I was in my first semester of graduate school. I think about it like allocating. Right. So we want to allocate our energy. And that really starts with the respect over what am I putting on my plate and what are the implications of those things I'm doing. So when I started graduate school, I was still coaching a highly successful competitive gymnastics team. It was new. I had a number of other life variables that were different. And I mean, the learning curve obviously was steep of like, this is a whole nother tier of education and commitment. And my program was very, um, how do I say, hands-on focused. So not only was I learning things in the classroom, but then I also had to go out and do whatever I was learning live, be it with a patient. Oh, and then have supervision on top of that. And then it was like, Also, we're going to require you to go look at yourself and your own therapy. So we're going to deconstruct the entire way in which you see your world. And like, I thought I could just keep running as I used to once upon a time run. (laughs) But when you start taking the pieces apart and going, oh, you mean I have to shift gears because the incline, just like a vehicle, right? A vehicle have to, if it's pulling more weight, does it go, do I stay in the same gear or do I downshift so that I can actually utilize, what is it? More torque, more power. Right. To be able to pull what I need to pull. Yeah. And once again, who's the same? I'll uh, I'll throw one more analogy in there just because, you know, I'm a mountain biker. And uh, mm-hmm. when you shift a mountain bike, or just any bike, I suppose, if you have gears, it's, it's difficult to shift under load. Okay. Right? So if you have a heavy weight on you or if you're pushing forward on the pedals and you try to shift up or down – 
you generally should let off the push in the pedal just slightly enough to allow the gear to shift. Oh, you mean so it would be like you have some compassion for the struggle. Right. That you- <laughs> That's a mechanical compassion. I love it. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you have to let it, you have to kind of ease off of it a little bit. Right. So if we're practicing sort of thinking of these concepts in a system, be it with others or with ourselves, don't all parts count? Yeah. All the time. And as one thing shifts, I have to also then shift or reallocate, which is interesting because ironically, that also poses another challenge like we talked about previously with habits, because we want to automate as much as we can because it takes less energy. That's right. But I have to recognize that like, oh, I'm practicing doing a new skill. And so I have to sort of change up how I do it. I mean, another example of what this might look like from a practical perspective is, you know, when I was in graduate school and trying to look at how do I reallocate like, oh, wow, this first semester was not so good. Hence why I was ridiculously sick (laughs) by the time finals came. (laughs) But see, because my body gave me a feedback that said, "Um, Marielle, this isn't going to work. You can't sustain this. Then I had to go, oh, I think I probably need to do some exercise. Like that might help me. But I, I still had that same demand. And so it looked like even changing up my commitments in both school and work and personally to go, I need to to tether in something that is going to give me energy and discharge the negative energy so that I can keep going. Because compassion and empathy doesn't just look like, oh, well, socks, keep going, like, hoorah, like I got a cheerleader, but rather this reallocation. And so I started to train with a trainer just once a week because I was like, that's what I can commit to. I've, I've got X amount of time, and I didn't try to change other things. It was like, what one thing can I tether in, can I braid in to what I'm already doing that would buffer? So I think mm-hmm. about it like buffering yeah. all of these other energy-depleting sort of responsibilities, even if they're positive. It, and so I don't want you to think like, oh, this only is negative. It can all be good stuff, but it doesn't mean you're not outputting too much energy than what you've got to give. And then you get sick. (laughs) Yeah. Or something. Something happens. There's some sort of feedback from your ability to sleep, getting sick, uh, snapping at your friends, not relating well with others, falling asleep in class. Who knows? Just something. There's some sort of feedback that says what you're doing and how you're doing it isn't working. Right. You got to change. So do you have any idea if we're talking about this both in relationship with ourselves and with others – how or what indicator lights might emerge if I'm not being respectful, compassionate, or empathetic? Because I think it's a question that's worth reflecting on of going, how would I know that this is off kilter or I need to modify? Is it always something physical? Or might it be feedback from another individual? Might it be my work performance? Like what sort of cues or clues might we be attentive to and listen to so that we know like, oh, wait, I I, I really think I need to start to pay attention yeah. to this and reflect further. There's a lot of things, honestly. I mean, uh, if you have a consistent relationship with someone 
and that relationship has some is some awareness that relationship might be how is your communication happening has it become mm-hmm. more frequent less frequent when you do talk do you talk shortly do you talk in long form you know how i would say communication with someone might be a key ingredient uh i would say potentially even arguing if arguments ensue or a lot of disagreement comes around whether it's somebody you're in close intimate relationship or if it's just somebody brand new that you're trying to essentially argue with over a point of view and there's no winning because you will both walk away not right or both <laughs> right and never really resolve it. So maybe arguing, communication, those are some physical yeah. ways. But what do you think? Yeah. No, I I definitely think those are true because ironically, so some researchers have contended that like couples – difficulties with communication because a lot of people will go seek therapy when communication is a problem. But how many couples when they're first dating have issues with communication? Uh, A lot because you're actually learning quite a bit about the other person and some people aren't comfortable with sharing extensive information because of past hurt or whatever. But there's some reason. Yeah. But a lot of times they're they're actually close, right? Because you're embedded in, you you have a strong desire to know and mm-hmm. understand, right? So when relationships are working well, communication generally does Flurry come well. easily. Yeah. yeah. And you actually come closer. So I might look at, you're spot on, proximity to others. Who do I routinely interface with? And what do those exchanges or interactions look like? Do they feel good in the moment? Do they pay dividends after the fact? You know, how how do I feel even going to work? How do I work with the people alongside me? Well, what you're describing really requires a lot of self-awareness and taking stock. I think we've said this before, taking stock of what's going on. You know, who am I talking to? Who are the close relationships in my life? How am, I, how am I performing in my job? Not so much just performing, but how much do I even like doing it? Do I like going? How do I wake up? Do I wake up angry? Do I go to sleep angry? Do I have difficulty going to sleep? You know, right. all these little things. How, how am I eating? Am I eating well? Am I eating in ways that are healthy for me and not detrimental to me? Am I mm-hmm. getting enough exercise or any at all? All these little right. things are all these little components that create a healthy human being that can have empathy, compassion, respect, and healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. I liked where you're going at, though, which is what are some of the indicator lights of off-kilter respect, empathy, and compassion? So from a clinical standpoint, what does some of that manifest? Like we've given some examples, but is there more? Well, I think that in some ways people, some people might talk about depression and anxiety. Well, we talk about them in all sorts of ways, but some would um say depression looks more like a certain sort of cognitive rigidity, an inflexibility in one's mind, whereas anxiety is sort of like this never-ending chaos of like, I can't settle my brain. I can't settle my mind um, in any way. So imagine if I have trouble shifting the lens in my mind over and over and over again, it could look like, you know, depression. And depression is really this sort of feedback loop of, 
you know, learned helplessness. Like nothing I do really pays off. I can make efforts to change. I can try to talk to somebody differently. I can try to get more sleep. I can try to exercise, but nothing really seems to make a difference. Mm -hmm. But another key thing, even with that depression, like one of the key symptoms is actually sort of this excessive feelings of guilt. And so guilt is actually an interesting indicator light because guilt doesn't work. I always describe it like a hook. I can't feel guilty unless I allow someone to make me feel guilty. Like I have a hook and I let people hang stuff on it. Right. Okay. And that isn't always true. Sometimes guilt actually looks like I just didn't give somebody else what they wanted. Somebody else wanted me to do for them that I couldn't actually give to them. So say you're working on a team and one person, I'm sure this never happens ever, ever, but you're working on a team and one person does all the work and another person isn't pulling their load. And so, you know, I'm going to be upset, angry, irritable, or feel guilty if I don't do my part and do enough and ironically compensate for this other person. But then when that person gets the good grade that, ironically, I also got, I might feel resentful. Yeah. Because I gave, I extended an, ex- an output so much more energy than what I actually had to give. And now I hold hostility towards you because of what you didn't give. But wait, who gave it? I did. Yeah, you did because it was it was your feelings and your choice. Right. And what's really interesting to that is that all this happens without the other person having any interaction or true input to it. All they did was do what they do, right? And you manufactured it all in your brain. Right. And so welcome to the oddities in interpersonal exchanges when you're like, what just happened? Like, what's going on? Because you just had that entire scenario all by yourself. Right. Now They're now a villain and they didn't do anything truly wrong. Right. But so if I don't communicate, ironically, and say, hey, I'm feeling like I'm doing a little too much work here. And like, how can we reallocate? Or I only have this bandwidth to give. It doesn't mean that I don't want to give that. But it might mean that right now, in light of all of my responsibilities, commitments, and where I'm at, even, you know, physically, physiologically, I don't have that to give. Yeah. This happens a lot in open source software. I'll, I'll give you a quick scenario. So in open source software, you often have this idea of someone who creates it and maintains the software. Okay. So a creator, a maintainer, someone who does a majority of the work. And then you have the idea of contributors. They can be just one time or a couple times. They could be long-term contri- contributors. They could be people who eventually become part of the core team. But you have this guilt in open source when someone uses your software, expects support, expects feature sets. Meanwhile, they've gotten all of the thing for free, which isn't the bad part. That's the point of open source, that it is free and that it is open source and that anybody can use or contribute. But it's this guilt factor that gets placed on maintainers and creators or contributors to essentially deliver value for someone that doesn't, not exactly deserve it, but the person or person's don't deserve the expectation to deliver. You know what I mean? Yeah. But so ironically, then what would also be helpful to navigate that differently would look like creating clarity 
around the expectation, right? So I expect to have X, Y, or Z done or completed by such and such in time on such and such a day or not, or here's what I can do, or I can't give you any certainty right. <laughs> because I'm juggling all of these other plates right now. It's okay to say, I don't have the bandwidth right now to give. So even if we reframe or create flexibility around this word no, that no really just means not right now. Yeah. Then I can feel better about saying no. It might also mean maybe never. <laughs> it could. <laughs> it could. But that allows flexibility if you want to extend that to say, I will leave, I will put a sort of uh, cursor tab mark right there that I'm, I'm willing to revisit it at a later time. It kind of reminds me of the buffer you talk about with habits. It, it puts a buffer between the person and the other person. So the person who uh, says, I can't right now or not right now or no, not right now kind of thing. And the other person who has expectations of that person to say, it's almost like they go to get upset with them. And then there's this thing in front of them, which is the no, not right now. And they're like, okay, you're off the hook. You, you know, sure. There, there is no expectation. But one thing you said there, which was clarity and expectation I'm a huge fan of, but not always perfect at giving and receiving clear expectations. That alone in relationship, in all relationships, mm -hmm. every relationship is a key ingredient for this discontentment or contempt that can be manufactured, whether true or untrue. Because if there's clear expectation of what to do, how to do it, who's responsible, who's going next, whatever however you can frame that, that really provides so much clarity for the next step. And and no one can be upset about it because it's clear. The expectation has been, been made clear. And right. you can't hold somebody to uh, a fire or to a thing that they didn't know they were responsible for. Amen. Yes, exactly. And that's why these are so significant in working in teams, but just living beside other people. I think another word we can talk about is this sense of cooperating, right? Co being more than one, mm -hmm. right? Operating, that more than one is operating at the same time. And so it's extending a certain degree of grace for others, which goes, you know, you might have your own struggles, but I need to still cooperate with you. <laughs> in order to get this task done or in order to, you know, whatever. We've talked around a couple words here, uh, and you've mentioned this, uh, John Gottman's research, and I think it's positioned on marital relationships, but the four horsemen, these four things are kind of crucial to a healthy relationship. Can you walk through that with us, please? Yeah, so John Gottman is the leading researcher when it comes to relationships. Like, he has researched couples in romantic relationships for, oh, goodness, over 20 years. And, in fact, he's had over 3,000 couples and some for as long as 20 years. And he's identified four key things when it comes to being destructive in relationships, which he references as the four horsemen. And so the first one of them is criticism. And so sometimes criticism can be constructive, right? That it's feedback around what we could do differently or do better. But criticism in the negative lane looks like making, you know, negative judgments or proclamations about other people 
in absolute terms. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm you sure always I always do this or you were terrible. Right? You were always bad at that. Sorry, I had right? to jump in there. My bad. It's just no, exactly. it's coming out. It's coming out. It was because we teach this, you know, to our kids. And ironically, the other day, I had said something about always or never. And it was my child who reminded me, like, Mom, in this family, we don't say always and never. <laughs> I was like, thank you, child. Right? Because he gave back exactly what I'd been teaching him. And that that is never, ironically, it, it won't feel good when criticism says you are always only ever X or Y. And so you are always so stubborn. You just never listen. That It's like assaulting somebody with words to say this is who you are as a binary thing. Right. You are either A or B. You are either stubborn, stubborn or, you know, you work well with me. So then we have defensiveness, which this arises when we feel criticized or attacked. It's sort of like I'm going to not take responsibility or, again, blame this on another person. Right. Well, that wasn't my fault. We did, you didn't tell me I was responsible to do X, Y, or Z, so it's up to you to manage that, all right? Think hot potato <laughs> when it comes to defensiveness. Like, it's not mine. Not mine. You take it. That's right. No you. And so then we're going to talk about um, contempt. And contempt is really a far more destructive form of criticism that involves treating your partner fundamentally with a sense of disrespect, ridicule, or disgust. This is rooted in name-calling. Yeah. Right? Like, you're such a jerk. I can't believe you would do X, Y, or Z. How dare you? You are, I mean, just name calling to the hilt, which I don't care who you are, really. Name calling erodes the fabric of a relationship because it's generally one derogatory in nature and it's binary. So you are categorically X or Y. Sometimes even intentionally. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sometimes you have contempt, not so much accidentally, but not truly intentionally. But then there's sometimes you do it and you intend to really, you know, word assault them and hurt their feelings yeah. and shame them or, you know, your intention is emotional pain. Right. So another example of this would be like mean-spirited sarcasm or rolling your eyes. I'm sure. I've never, never done that. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> right. But it's a I way of I truly don't being... do that. Okay. I really don't. I said that as a funny, but I really don't roll my eyes. There's... A way in which it is so dismissive of another person and just mean, yeah. right? To say, like, you aren't worth my respect. And it it hurts, well, right? I didn't if think you, about that worth part. That's a, a value, right? You are not valuable. Your perspective isn't valuable. Your feelings aren't valuable. Right. And that's why this is such a powerful one that of all of these four horsemen, contempt is the worst. Yeah. And I would offer that the reason is because it's rooted in a fundamental sense of disrespect or a lack of value for another human being. Yeah. So we offer this sort of fundamental layer that says you're human and so we're on the same team. 
And if I wouldn't do that to a family member or somebody else I care about, maybe I shouldn't do that to a stranger either. And I can then also move it over into the lane of the self and go, do I allow myself to call myself names? Wow, that's true. Do I call myself stupid? You know, do I call myself a moron? That it's a way in which we actually assault ourselves. Or even, you know, this sense of like, what's wrong with you? Like, why can't you just get it right? We we reference this a lot in therapy, like this inner critic, wherein there's no space to sort of air or be human. It's like, oh, no, you will fall in line no matter what day, what time, like hop to get with it or shame on you. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're reminding uh, us to when we apply these things and we still have one more to go through, but but these things, when we look at empathy, compassion, respect, or these four horsemen to not just look at everyone else, but to the self, because we are often our, we are our worst critics and in, in almost unanimously. And, you know, we often think that we can, it's a one way street, these things. It's actually a two way street. It's how do we feel about us? How do we speak to ourselves? Because that could be the beginning of someone's issues is that how they feel about themselves is stopping them from having these things for other people. Yes, fundamentally. But but continue. I don't want to derail us. I just want to put that out there. I love that, that you're not only giving us the perspective of other people, but also ourselves. Yeah. And so this last one is stonewalling. And so imagine it, it's just like the word sounds. You're putting a wall between you and your partner or another person by either withdrawing or shutting down or sort of distancing. It's interesting because um, in Gottman's research, he talks about sort of there, there tends to be a pursuer and a withdrawer. Mm. So stonewalling is very much this person who withdraws and retreats. A lot of times, I, th- I want to say his research is like 85% of the time it tends to be the male in the relationship. And I would say that's in heterosexual couples, not that that applies across the board. Right. But that this sense of I need to sort of go in my cave so that I'm not overwhelmed by another person and your emotions are just like way too much. They've exceeded my threshold. And so I'm going to go away and I'll come back out when you're not that. But so there's there's little hacks or, or tricks within this that it's it doesn't have to be, again, a binary thing of either I leave or I stay, because sometimes we do need to sort of um, temper. Disconnect. Mm-hmm, we need to go away. And so in our relationships, I would say there has to be a limit because the pursuer needs to know like, oh, no, you're coming back. Right. Like, you don't get to just leave. You're not getting off of this. Right. But the withdrawer needs to be like, hold on, I still need time to breathe and sort of recalibrate so that I can like come back to you and remember that you're not like, you know, an ogre. Right. Well, there's in any, well, I can't say that. Uh, In most scenarios, there needs to be this sort of safe ground, this this time to sort of decompress because going back to halt, you know, when you're uh, hungry, angry, tired or lonely, you know, in those scenarios, you're not going to make the best decisions. You won't even make the best decisions about your emotions in regards to the other person that you're in relationship with. Yes. Right. And so you will not be your best person, say the best things in the heat of the mm-hmm. moment. Right? right. Give yourself some time to relax, reflect, and then come back to the scenario in a more calm manner where you have empathy, respect, compassion at the forefront of this conversation rather than 
just your anger or just your emotion. Right, right. And so we haven't um, really, we've alluded to this, but not been specific. And I think that we want to, I don't want to have these conversations without some sense of action, because we can do a lot of motions, but if I don't have an action plan, I just end up treading water and not really getting to a different place that I want to be. And so awareness, self-awareness, but awareness in general is step one. If I can't practice the sort of art and dance of self-reflection, of looking in the mirror and go, who am I? What do I prefer? What feels like it fits? And how might I enhance my understanding of another so that I can feel as though my relationships, my world, both with myself and others, is this art of a dance of changes in tempo and changes in music, wherein we both get to participate in how it feels good is the most fundamental step in the process. All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of Brain Science. If you haven't yet, please join us on this journey. We have so much to explore. Subscribe to this podcast at changelaw.com slash brain science. We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Overcast, and anywhere else you can get podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, we're at Brain Science FM. You can also join our Slack community. It's free to join, talk about all things brain science with me, Marielle, and the rest of the community. And if you have topics or suggestions for the show, we want to hear them. Email us, editors at changelaw.com. Huge thanks to our partners, Fastly, Rollbar, and Linode. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And last but not least, if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed to get all of our podcasts. Head to changelaw.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. It's one feed to rule them all. Get all of our shows plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again soon.